and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we will be doing an episode on our top 10 films of 2019. Uh, we did this last year as well, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, this is a bit late. Most people posted their top 10 lists uh, some time ago, but uh, I think we kind of just forgot about this. I was a bit behind on movies this year. But someone tweeted us asking if we were going to do an episode like this, and it seemed like a great time just before the Oscars to highlight some films that are nominated, and in my case, many films that are not nominated for any awards, but are better than those movies. So before we dive into awards season next week, we're going to talk about some smaller and better movies that you should all watch if you haven't. So uh, yeah, this is some, some film advocacy this week, I would say. So my number 10 is Hustlers, which we have done an episode on. Yeah, this is like just such an entertaining, but also like interestingly directed movie, which has also been kind of a big discussion point during awards season because J-Lo should have got more awards, <laughs> uh, which she really, the fact that she's not nominated, wild. Well, this also shows up on my list a bit higher up. But, yeah, um, there's going to be a lot of overlap on our list. Yes. So we, will, we will just discuss whichever one came first. <laughs> right. Um, I read the screenplay for this recently, actually. this Around award season time, often a lot of PDFs of screenplays will go around because when people are campaigning for Oscars, the studios will put them out. And it was so interesting to read it. I only saw it once. I'd really like to see it again. But the screenplay for that movie is just so tight and so intelligent. And there are obviously some changes that were made, but it's really close to the script they sent out. And it is just so focused on the story that they're telling and the sort of political message they want to get across without being too overbearing. And I really, really think that this movie was just massively underappreciated by basically every awards body that gives yeah. out awards um the direction I, mean, I was about to be glib and just end your sentence with it was underappreciated by men <laughs> yes <laughs> because also when you think about the concept of this film like obviously the one to compare it to a lot is magic mike because you know they're both about the economy and they're both about strippers and they're both kind of a combination of a really great drama starring somewhat unexpected actors and also being really entertaining and crowd-pleasing uh, which this movie is just so much and it's so satisfying but it's also a type of drama which generally is very kind of acclaimed and gets a lot of awards attention. And um, I mean, I'm going to try and not focus too much on awards in this podcast, partly because we are going to do an Oscars episode and partly because awards don't really signify quality a lot of the time. But Hustlers, I think, of my top 10 is one of the most sort of obvious like awards bait type movies in like a good way because it's based on a magazine article it is uh, kind of based on a true story crime drama with a fun, catchy concept. And it's it's very accessible while also saying something about society. And it's super entertaining and well-written. And you've got like a flashy star in the lead role. And then it has a great ensemble cast. And this is like the good version of a movie like Ford v Ferrari, which I know Morgan enjoyed. And I guess I tolerated while watching, but I'm just like, this film is vacuous nonsense. And Hustlers is like the good version of that sort of not quite biopic genre. We're going to get into Ford v Ferrari next week, my friend. I mean, I think the more interesting comparison for this movie, actually, rather than Magic Mike, is to Scorsese's gangster films. 
everyone was comparing Joker to Scorsese this year for obvious reasons. It's deliberately invoking him, but this movie has such a strong connection to those movies, not in a derivative way, but in a more interesting way than Joker in that it's dealing with a lot of similar thematic material. It's very zippy and entertaining in a similar way to Goodfellas. And it has like actual things to say, but unlike those Scorsese movies, it's about women, which is not appealing to people. But I mean, it's just pristinely, pristinely directed. The sound of the music is incredible. And I think Jennifer Lopez gives one of the three best performances of the year. And um, it's pure star power. Yeah. And actual acting. And it made over $100 million in the United States, I believe. And just basically no one talked about it, which is the kind of thing that everyone should be celebrating because it was an original property that made a huge amount of money but again uh women so yeah you know i think i really think people are just like oh it's like bridesmaids or something you know (laughs) and it's like fuck off (laughs) yeah my number 10 is the documentary one child nation uh which was sort of in contention for the uh documentary oscar and didn't quite get in, which was too bad because I found it really, really compelling. Um, I was been sort of catching up on documentaries recently because I hadn't seen very many. I think it was a really strong year for docs in general, but this one is about the one child policy in China. It was directed by this woman, Nanfu Wang, um, along with uh, Lin Zhang, but Nanfu Wang was the sort of main director. And uh, she grew up in China, very little, had very little money and sort of managed to get herself to film school ultimately, and then eventually emigrated to America. And when she had a child herself, she became very interested in the one child policy, which she hadn't thought a lot about. And she goes back to China and is interviewing all of these people from her hometown, including members of her family, but also people who were affected by the policy and also people who were carrying it out in various capacities. So she talks to like the midwife who delivered her, but then also was involved in basically murdering babies and all and uh, sterilizing uh, women against their consent and clearly feels just this unbelievable amount of guilt about this after the fact. And then another woman who is really involved in implementing the policy who feels no guilt at all and thinks that this was necessary And she's really, really good at talking to people. So she gets these incredibly interesting interviews out of her subjects, some of whom seem to be saying things that they don't quite realize that they're saying. And so you get this interesting window into this policy. And some of them are very self-aware because they feel so guilty about it and are very deliberately telling her what they think. Uh, it reminded me a lot of the Joshua Oppenheimer documentary, The Look of Silence, about uh, oh, the Indonesian <laughs> genocide, which came out several yeah, years ago. Yeah, your description sounded like that, and this is also another movie I've, I've not seen, because I was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I mean, The Look of Silence, I've not seen The Act of Killing, which is the film that preceded that one about the same subject, Yeah. Um, but which I need to see at some point. But similarly, you're like, when am I going to sit down and watch this movie? Uh, the Look of Silence is better than this, which is not a dig on this movie at all. Like, that's one of the best films I've ever seen. But the fact that this made me think of that at all is, like, a huge compliment. And I didn't find this as kind of brutal to watch as The Look of Silence, although it's obviously still upsetting. But um, it just had a similar insight into these, like, huge societal traumas and how they've affected people. Like, 
years and years later across this enormous country. And I just found it really, really affecting. And um, I would highly recommend it. It's on Amazon Prime now in America, at least, but I think everywhere. So it's easily accessible and quite watchable despite the upsetting subject matter. I, I just, it was great. I would recommend it to anyone. So um, One Child Nation, check it out. My number nine is, um, actually, this is kind of an interesting one because when I was making my list um, a few weeks ago, I had like a top 15 rather than a top 10. And one of the things higher up in the top 15 was Can You Ever Forgive Me, which came out in 2018. But my actual number nine for this list is technically a 2020 movie for America, thanks to the weirdness of international release dates. It is The Personal History of David Copperfield, which I think I discussed sort of briefly in one of our film festival podcasts. And... I think it just came out in the UK and it's coming out in May in the US and it's so fucking good. It's so good. Obviously an adaptation of the Charles Dickens novel David Copperfield. It's directed by Armando Iannucci who's kind of known for political satire comedy. So films like In the Loop and also The Death of Stalin a couple of years ago. And it stars Dev Patel as David Copperfield and it is just a delight. It's an incredibly entertaining and charming film but it's also quite biting and it's a very interesting thing to see from Armando Iannucci because his brand is very cynical you know he does very cynical political satire and this movie is definitely kind of commenting a lot on politics because it's a fucking Dickens adaptation and it intentionally has this very diverse cast which is unusual for British historical dramas so you've got a Victorian Dickens adaptation with a British Asian actor in the lead role and then a really racially diverse cast among the other supporting characters um, and also like lots of very famous people, as you'd expect. So it's sort of Peter Capaldi, Ben Whishaw, Tilda Swinton, that sort of people. But it combines this sort of political astuteness that Armando Iannucci is known for with just a very charming and delightful sort of comedy drama tone. Um, and obviously Dev Patel is like absurdly charming. This is such a good role for him. Like, I think we all know that he's a great actor and this is just tremendous for him he is just so I mean he's incredibly handsome in this role <laughs> just <laughs> first of all we all know that Dev Patel has amazing hair and he's just like he has so much range but also like stylistically it's very interesting like it makes a lot of kind of quirky but not overly twee directorial and editing choices and it's intentionally quite surreal um because like David Copperfield is one of the weirder Dickens novels like it literally opens with him his birth from his own perspective and that sort of thing so amazing film just really fun and it's sort of family friendly so people can go with their kids and stuff it is a 2020 UK release also yeah yeah, yeah. it's a 2020 UK release but I mean January it's out now so you're just cheating a little bit. So that's Well, I saw it whatever. It's one it's one of my personal top 10 films of 2019. My number 9 is uh The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which was released in the UK for around a week. So you Yeah, it was released here it. for like 5 seconds and I didn't get to see it because I wasn't even aware, which gives you an idea of how much attention was like given to this release. I really fucking want to see this movie. <laughs> yeah, so this was at Sundance last year and then came out in the summer it was an a24 movie and i think was sort of a victim of them having too many films as we've talked about before like you can just only exert so much effort on uh, so many things but uh it is the first film directed by joe talbot and 
it was co-written by him and this guy, Jimmy Fails, who's also the lead actor in the movie. And it's sort of autobiographical about Jimmy Fails' life. And he is a black man living in San Francisco and is obsessed with this like beautiful Victorian home in San Francisco that is like his family's house that he um, believes his grandfather built in the 1920s. And whether or not this is actually the case sort of becomes an issue in the course of the movie. But um, it is not the best written movie of the year, I would say. The screenplay isn't terrible or anything, but that's probably the weak link of the film. You can kind of tell that it's a debut in certain ways. But the acting is really, really beautiful. Jimmy Fails, who plays the lead, is really great. But particularly Jonathan Majors, who plays his best friend, and is trying to be a writer and is sort of a very internal person, but has this sort of odd relationship with these other black men who live on their street who are more sort of lower class and acting in a more sort of stereotypically lower class way. Like they're using AAVE and this guy doesn't because he's like trying to be a playwright and he has a sort of desire to be like them, but he doesn't quite fit in. And there's all of this really interesting stuff about like code switching and class and obviously the relationship with white San Francisco, which is gentrifying so much. Uh, hence the title, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And it's just very smart on all of that subject matter. But the cinematography and the music of this film are so unbelievably beautiful. Like I cannot even begin to describe. It has the best score of the year. So the fact that that didn't get any attention anywhere is absurd Who wrote to me. It? The score is by Emil Mosseri, who I think has some, like he's a musician in some other capacity. He has a band or something. Like I don't think he's done a lot of uh, scoring. He's also young. And I was just like overcome by the beauty of the movie watching this in the movie theater. It has this very sublime quality and the sense of sort of something that's passing from you. Like they have no access to this place anymore because it's being taken away from them. It's just really, really affecting. And I'm really looking forward to what all these people do next because clearly there was just a huge, huge amount of talent from all of these guys I'd never heard of before, which is always a really exciting feeling when you're watching a first movie to be like, oh my god, this is this is like the real, real deal. So I really recommend checking that out. Um, it'll be available everywhere now, I'm sure. And it's sort of a, a hidden gem of the year, I would say. So go look for that one. My number eight is Little Women, which I feel like we can we don't have to talk about that much here because we really recently did a podcast on it. My blurb for this one is basically a trailer for our podcast, which you should listen to if you haven't already. It's just a really delightfully sincere emotional experience while also being very artistically precise and just a, a very intelligent view of what could have been just sort of another schmaltzy redo of a story that people have seen a lot before. As Morgan and I discussed in our episode, we came at it from extremely different angles and that I had never read the book and didn't know anything about it and she grew up with it in a very intense way. And we also had slightly different reactions to it. I think I loved it more, but I think we're both also in agreement that it's a wonderfully written and directed and performed movie with wonderful costumes. <laughs> I like this like, movie very much, but you loved it and that's fine. Yes, people should listen to our podcast on that. We will link to all the podcasts we did on the various films that we touch on here, obviously, but you should definitely check that one out. 
uh, my number eight is another film that we talked about and that I am sure is on your list as well. And that is High Life by Claire Denis, <laughs> which I saw sure is. <laughs> like a year and a half ago at the New York Film Festival. I really need to see it again. I missed it when it came out in theaters this year. So I don't actually remember it with a huge amount of specificity, but just what a wonderful, weird piece of filmmaking that is. And, you know, we talked about this at length when we recorded on this as well, but the sort of strange, unsettling quality of that movie has really stuck with me. And I think Robert Pattinson's performance was really fantastic as well. He's just such an exciting actor and a great celebrity, really fun to read his interviews. Just love him. (laughs) Yeah. And there are certain, certain images from this movie that have, will sort of come to my mind occasionally in a way that I always find really rewarding and it has one of the best endings of a movie I've oh, seen. Oh, the ending in is some time. just so good. It's a really yeah. upsetting and nauseating film. Yes. Um, obviously on my list. <laughs> the thing that kind of is particularly intriguing about High Life is it just feels so unique and original and weird. And the concept is just so done. Like, there's a million movies that are a thriller about a bunch of people trapped in a spaceship going towards an unknown and ominous destination. That is like a very specific subgenre of sci-fi movie, of which I will watch virtually any. (laughs) But this is just such an interesting take on it. And it's from a director who doesn't typically do science fiction. Claire Denis does sort of dramas, upsetting dramas. I recently watched one of her most famous films, Beau Travail, which is about members of the French Foreign Legion. And it's this sort of homoerotic film about people doing ritualistic military maneuvers in the desert. It's an adaptation of Billy Budd. Yeah, adaptation of Billy Budd. And just, I love her. I just love Claire Denis. And this film has wonderful roles for many actors, but obviously, especially Robert Pattinson. And it also has probably my favourite credits music of the year, which is a weird one, but it's like, you see a perfect film and then it ends with a really unexpected and fun piece of credits music choice. And you're like, oh, great. Because usually, (laughs) you know, indie dramas don't really, credits music is not relevant to indie dramas. And it's just really fun to watch a film that is so hardcore and serious and upsetting. And then they're like, we're going to give you like a, basically a pop song on the credits, but written for the movie. Um, And usually that's what you get for, like, fucking, you know, Marvel 3. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So, yeah, we'll link to that as well. Your number seven, please. Uh, Yeah, my number seven is The Souvenir, another very nauseating film, which we actually have not discussed on this podcast yet. This is a very, very small one. And if I had control over things... Once again, not to overemphasize awards, but if I had control over things, Joanna Hogg would be nominated for like every directorial prize. <laughs> this is just such a great movie. And it was, if you want the same experience as I had, just skip the next five minutes of the podcast and watch the film. But basically I went into this film knowing virtually nothing apart from the fact that it was in some capacity a romantic drama and that it was extraordinarily good. And basically the concept of this film is it stars Honor Swinton Byrne, who is Tilda Swinton's daughter in basically her first acting role, and also Tom Burke, who is an English TV actor. And it is very closely based on the director Joanna Hogg's youth. So she's now, she's directed many films, and this has kind of taken place like in the 80s. And 
the film doesn't kind of introduce itself in a traditional manner. So I it was I was like twenty minutes in before I even realized this film was taking place in the eighties. Um, but like, it is incredibly upsetting and wonderfully performed and the story unfolds in such an interesting and like realistic way without it being like here's a documentary style film because it is about a young filmmaker this very kind of naive rather posh woman who is surrounded by much less posh naive people and she gets into this relationship with this older man but not like scandalously older it's not really clear but he turns out to be um, quite a serious drug addict and just it's a very manipulative relationship but it's not kind of melodramatized you know it's not like a histrionic film and it is just so upsetting and the experience of watching this movie was so intense for me like emotionally intense and artistically intense and it has a marvelous ending and unlike most films of this type it has like a sequel in the works they are currently making a second film but just the whole process of this film creatively behind the scenes is very interesting because it's a person with a very sort of sympathetic but also critical eye towards their own youth and the way it was filmed was I think it was if not kind of scriptless then it was sort of day by day the director sort of told the actors what to do. So her method is she has a very detailed outline and she doesn't share that with the actors. Obviously she has to pitch them something but she doesn't tell them what's going to happen and she will tell them like what to do in the scene, but there's no script, which makes the performances just like beyond belief. Tom Burke in particular, who's playing this sort of bad dude that this woman is dating, who is very articulate and witty and cutting. The fact, I just don't even understand how you do this. It's beyond belief. And so they'll do the scene and then she'll say like, okay, and this time you're going to like get up from the table and like instigate a fight with so-and-so. So she has it like very planned out in her head, although I'm sure there's some improvisation on her part also, but it's all done in this manner to sort of get the actors to generate a bunch of it themselves. And there's like one scene at the end that I won't spoil, but it's very critical that like Tilda Swinton says something that's a scripted set of lines, but basically the entire film is essentially improvised. And there are certain moments in the movie where you can kind of sense that that's the case, but you would never guess that the whole film has been cre- constructed in this manner because it is just such, the dialogue is so sharp and tells you so much about these people. And it's, it's just, because- it's one of the most well-observed films right. about British class that I have ever seen. And just the two lead actors is just, it's just fascinating because Honor Swinton Byrne, when they were filming this, was like 19 or 20 And when you see interviews with her, it's like, this isn't to kind of be negative in any way or sort of downplay her performance, but you can really tell that she, you know, she is a posh, perhaps not sheltered, but she is like a posh young woman and there's a lot of her in this role and it is very much like a role for her rather than it being one of those sort of transformative roles where someone has really like changed a lot to inhabit that. Whereas with Tom Burke, it's like Tom Burke is really inhabiting something which is very different from his own sort of persona and life. And you have these two tremendous performances which are fitting into like the archetypes of what those two characters would be. So like a more experienced, like worldly actor and someone where it's your debut role and you've, you know, grown up in a castle sort of thing. And the kind of extreme Englishness of it and like the time and period setting is just unbelievably stunning. Like it's, it's hard to talk about because it's just such an impressive work, but in a really unshowy way. 
Yeah, I mean, I, as I was watching it, I only saw it once. I'm desperate to see it again. I had hoped to see it again in a movie theater, and then that wasn't possible. But um, I really was engaged, and it was stressful to me. Like, I've never wanted to strangle someone more than this, like, awful man I was watching like, this movie. I was movie. physically just sitting there feeling so tense. Just, <laughs> But I wasn't watching it thinking, like, oh my god, I fucking love this movie. Because it is a very sort of intellectually rigorous experience. It's, you know, it's not as difficult as some of her earlier films. I've seen a couple of them. I have to watch the others. But she used to be, like, seriously experimental in a way that could sometimes be like quite inaccessible. And this movie's not like that, but it's still kind of tough. But I have just thought about this movie so much since seeing it like it has really really stuck with me in a way that well, it's like a literary not. novel film yes and i wanted to just like murder this man the whole time i was watching it and it's not like the movie ends up being sentimental towards him but i didn't leave with a great sense of rage like it she clearly has a very like evolved perspective on this experience that she had as a young person and like understands that this guy was a bad news but is not still carrying this, like, virulent hatred, you know? Yeah. Well, there's just such a sense, like I said, it's like very sympathetic towards her younger self, but there's such a sense of understanding because, you know, I think, like, our age, like, we're still within, like, the time frame that in our recent past we will have known people who've been in, like, one this type of situation, but we're old enough to have the perspective to yeah. be like, oh, for God's sake. Whereas I think maybe when you're, like, 50 or 60, you have that other layer of perspective where you're like, this is actually just sort of you know it's unfortunate but there's really no way to avoid that because like your brain hasn't fully cooked yet yes so. <laughs> yeah i just love this movie so much it's higher up on on my list the costumes also just a final note fucking amazing because it's like there's so much 80s stuff in current pop culture and it's really rare to see a film that kind of is is real 80s and especially british you know, because yeah. it's like, it's unshowy British 80s. So you've got basically the protagonist is dressing, you know, like Princess Diana, you know, like low budget Princess Diana, but also sort of like dressing down and being really practical and wearing like practical clothes because she's going to college. But there's also just like obvious class divides from between her and her classmates at film school because all of them are like much more working class and also like just much more clued into real life. And it, oh, Oh, There's some so custom detail. dresses that get made yes. later. Oh my god. Just, yeah. Watch this movie if you haven't. Really amazing. Uh, my number seven is Hustlers, which we have already discussed. So, number six. Yeah, my number six is like my film. My <laughs> film of 2019, which is Baccarat, which we discussed in one of our film festival podcasts. But I know quite a lot of our listeners don't listen to our film festival montage podcast. So, Baccarat is a Brazilian it's characterized as a weird Western um, because it's quite difficult to pin down. It is sort of a dystopian near future, but only in the sense that kind of our present is dystopian. It's set in a Brazilian rural village called Bacarao. And um, it's this, the town has its own sort of mythos and a very close knit community of like really interesting people among an ensemble cast. So there is one woman who's nominally the protagonist, but there's lots and lots of really interesting and quite realistic side characters. It was designed to be different from, I guess, the sort of mainstream view of Brazilian culture, both in Brazil and to foreigners. So it's like 
a lot of these people are poor. Everyone looks very average. It's not like, oh, here's loads of like hot urban people. It's very racially diverse. It's very much kind of about like a rural lifestyle. And it goes through interesting like tonal switches because the first third of the film very much is like it has a slow beginning which I know Morgan wasn't really into and I was like I love that this film has a slow beginning but um, it has a very slow quite weird beginning where you're gradually introduced to all of these characters in this town and it feels very much like oh I'm watching you know I'm watching an art film and then it gradually sort of develops into a Tarantino kind of situation but very politically astute in a very obvious way Um, I think in our like in our film festival podcast, I compared it to Children of Men. It's not like that tonally <laughs> at all because it's much more like schlocky intentionally and um, in some t- some ways like almost campy, but n- but like in terms of the way it observes the current world and gives you a dystopian near future, which is extremely plausible. Like there are things that happen in this film that apparently happened in real life, like within months of the film's release. And it's just a really interesting and unique movie with a very cool soundtrack, um, some of which was written by the iconic filmmaker John Carpenter. I would not want to spoil it any further, but I fucking love Baccarat. If you have a chance to see it, I feel like it's still waiting to be released in the US. Yeah, it has not come out here yet. I yeah. think it's coming out in the spring, although I don't quote me on that. It has. It definitely hasn't been released yet because I would have seen. But um, it's it's coming. Great movie. Really good stuff. My number six is Marriage Story, which we also discussed in our film festival recaps. When I saw that at NIF, I was like, this is my number one movie of the year. I love this movie so much. I've cooled on it a little bit, but still love it, obviously. I think it has a little bit of a slightly too controlled, which is why I've cooled on it a tiny bit. Like my favorite movie of Noah Baumbach's is The Squid and the Whale, which feels a little bit more emotionally zany and frenetic. And this is so precisely theatrical that he really has like, ordered every single tiny thing in a way that I think stifles the movie just a tiny bit. But it's so unbelievably well-written. The performances are just incredible. Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, people have been talking about, obviously, a ton all year. They've both been nominated for Oscars. But every single supporting performance as well is just amazing. Obviously, Laura Dern is going to win an Oscar for this, and she's great. But, like, you go down the whole list. Like, Alan Alda is fantastic. Ray Liotta is fantastic. Uh, Merritt Weaver has one scene in this movie, and she is completely hilarious. Like, it's just so... Oh, she's so funny. Oh, my God. The whole cast of this movie is incredible. Yeah, and I just was really, really affected by it. And I've seen many people on the internet talking about how it's really sexist or whatever clearly in favor (laughs) i don't i don't agree with that at all it's not like what movie did you watch i don't understand (laughs) like and they the movie does spend more time with the adam driver character and i wish they had just tipped it like five minutes over you know towards the scarlett johansson character but i think this biggest gift of the film is how unbelievably empathetic it is to both of those people without making them out to be saints. I mean, I have no idea what Noah Baumbach's ex-wife thinks of this movie, but when you compare it to something like, say, Mother by Darren Aronofsky. Oh, God. Which is just like... uh, Nightmare. Did a podcast on that. Yeah. Or even, (laughs) like, Her by Spike Jones, which I think is an incredible film. Like, I think it's a better movie than this movie, and I think that is pretty generous to 
Sofia Coppola as well. It's a movie about his divorce and he's very, very self-critical, but like he can't help but include like one or two scenes where he's kind of being nasty about her because it's clearly still singing him. And this movie feels so not interested in doing that. Like it's completely just fair to both of them in a way that I found really moving. And the, the acting is just so good. I love Adam Driver. This film isn't on my list, but like I agree with literally everything Morgan said here. And I think I'd add, because we discussed this so far before the film's release, there's been like a lot more discourse about the movie, especially because it was on Netflix. There's been a lot of discourse about like chunks of the movie. And I would say, first of all, to do with the kind of the the idea that this film is sexist, I think this is perhaps the ultimate example of a movie that like really intentionally or unintentionally, it really reflects back your own sort of biases and expectations. And because it's very explicitly a film where it's like there's two sides of the story, a lot of people are going to automatically side with one person because that's their viewpoint or they will automatically look for what they perceive to be biases. I also thought it was like a very sensitive movie towards both of them. And ultimately I think that the women does end up coming out of it more sympathetic and that isn't like oh Adam Driver's character is the protagonist and it's awful that he's being like heroized for his bad behavior it's not like the movie is like this guy is pretty done some fucked up stuff you know and also um the kind of main thing about this movie's release on Netflix is that there was this particular clip from it went really viral which is a fight scene and everyone was talking about like oh god this is like just every annoying drama class where two people just scream at each other and it's just this shit movie about like heterosexual people People yelling at each other for two hours and it's so obnoxious and also this guy's so clearly abusive because he like punches a hole in a wall and it's like no like <laughs> yes if a man punches a hole in the wall in the middle of an argument it's like very fucked up and scary and that is an intimidating thing and it's like a massive changing point in your relationship but also this scene is like it's just like judging the whole of jaws by like the one scene where the like shark jumps out like it's just meaningless because the whole point of the movie is first of all it's a very funny movie like you are laughing all the way through the film also that is like the culmination of like a very gradual build up between these two characters where like the film starts off where they're on quite cordial terms and it is like a very realistic depiction and whenever kind of anyone was pointing this out to do with like the endless obnoxious backlash cycle to this kind of clip going viral. It's like people were like, well, if you think that's a realistic way for people to behave in a relationship, you've had really bad relationships. And it's like, no, the whole point is that they're getting divorced. Like it was a bad relationship. <laughs> yes. Like that is the premise of the film is that these people are getting a divorce because they ought to have a divorce. <laughs> it was just so fascinating to me in terms of Netflix has had a huge amount of success memifying their movies and television shows to make them more popular. And this is like the bad example of that. Yes. Like, this should be like an indie film that people are watching quietly in a cinema. Right. And I had a really funny experience. I was home at Christmas, I think. And my father had watched this film. He loves Noah Baumbach. And he was just like, amazing film. Like those two are so great. Oh my God, that scene where they were fighting. And I was like, yeah, great movie. Like, I agree. And I drove up to Massachusetts with my brother who just graduated from college is not a movie person. And, but he's like on the internet. And he, I made some comment about this. It was somehow came up in discussion. And he was like, oh yeah, isn't that movie really bad? And I was like, no, it's very good. And he was like, oh, I just like saw the like, there was something about like this fight online. And I was like, oh my God, like, no, no. <laughs> yeah. The final postscript to this, I have to say, although both lead actors gave very good performances, I hope that Scarlett Johansson doesn't win an Oscar. I mean, she's not going to win an Oscar. So, because Renee Zellweger is going to win an Oscar for the fucking boring movie 
playing a real person. Yeah, I mean, I just... I have exactly the opinions of Scarlett Johansson I think you would expect me to have. I disapprove of her politically. I feel like the whole situation is a mess. She's a very good actor. That's the reason why this whole thing keeps happening. Because like she's good at acting. She's apparently very charismatic in person. She's fantastically beautiful. That would just excuse any number of ills. And she hasn't murdered anyone yet. So <laughs> I mean, I uh, I also find her objectionable and dislike many of her opinions. I do not think she has done anything bad enough to get her kicked out of Hollywood. So No, I don't think that's going to happen. Because like, whenever people are like, oh, hasn't she been cancelled? It's like, not by the Hollywood establishment. She is the most popular and lucrative actress in Hollywood. Even though all of the blockbusters she makes are bad. Um, most of the art films she makes are good. Most of the blockbusters apparently make money. Who knows? But yeah, I feel like the concept of her winning an Oscar sends a message that I find unpleasant. Well, even you don't though have to worry about that happening because <laughs> okay. there's literally zero chance. So what is your number five? Uh, my number five is The Farewell, which I believe we didn't... We did not do an episode on that because it came out like months later in the UK. Yeah, there was like release date issues. Yeah, But... The farewell is just really wonderful. Like I honestly, the, just the, the top five on my list. I feel like this is slightly below the top four, but the top four are basically equal in my mind because there were so many fucking good movies last year. But the farewell is pretty much a perfect movie. I think I assume that our listeners have heard of it, but um, it's an autobiographical movie by Lulu Wang. Uh, it is about her grandmother being diagnosed with terminal cancer in China, and her family decides collectively to not tell her grandmother that she is dying. So they all kind of go back under basically false pretenses from America and from around the world to celebrate the shotgun wedding of a cousin, which is basically arranged so they have the excuse of all spending time with her grandmother. And it's just, it's a wonderful kind of combination of kind of observational comedy and a lot of social commentary about sort of being like a second generation immigrant and coming back to your family's home country and sort of culture clashes, but also the warmth of family while also being um, not sentimental in the sort of schmaltzy sense, but there's a lot of sort of tear jerking moments while also being funny. And like, it's just so smart and well acted. And there's like a really interesting cast and love Lulu Wang. She just seems marvelous. <laughs> Yeah, this is my number 11. Really, like, just barely missed. I loved this movie. I cried like a baby watching it. My grandmother died this year, and this I, this came out before that, but it was, I mean, it was clear that it was going to happen shortly, and I literally was just, like, weeping buckets, which I never do at movies, but I was, like, fully bawling. Oh. But I, yeah, I thought it was really wonderful. Um, Zhao Shuzhen, who plays the grandmother, is, who's not an actor previously i believe was just tremendous aquafina who really should have gotten nominated for an oscar uh we'll talk about that next week bad category this year she i found so affecting um and it was exciting to see her in this because it was so and different. all of her like physical mannerisms are great like she just has she has a lot of range which you might not expect because like she's like a fucking comedy youtuber and stuff um and it's kind of known for being zany and this is like a drama performance totally different and she was so good and that's was also really exciting in terms of like new talent you know but i just found it so precisely observed in such a compelling way i mean all the stuff about the family there and the wedding like it was so specific in a way that felt really really satisfying to me and beautifully directed I, yeah i i loved it too barely barely missed out on my list 
Oh, and there was lots of good food stuff in this one as well. Really I love it when a film has stuff. good food stuff. Yeah, and uh, Lulu Wang and Barry Jenkins are the best couple on Twitter. So, oh yeah, they are been... possibly yeah, possibly just the best couple. Great couple. Um, yeah. Don't feel the need to know anything else about them. I don't want to know anything about people's lives because it's probably better that way and it's none of my business. But they seem great. <laughs> lots of good videos. I wish them the best. It's been a fun part of the Oscar season for me this year. My number five, which I believe is higher up on your list, is Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> you better believe it is. <laughs> yeah. I've also discussed on our film festival podcast. I saw this a second time uh, last month, and it's, I mean, it's just so good. It's just such a good movie. Where to begin, you know? <laughs> I wrote fan fiction for this for Yuletide this year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm almost speechless. Like, it is the most beautifully constructed movie I've seen in such a long time. The precision of the entire thing, the cinematography by Claire Maton, I think is probably how you say her name, who also shot Atlantics, another fantastic movie this year. Uh, everyone should hire her for everything. God, she's good. This movie is just so gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, we talked about this when we, uh, spoke about this last time but um as someone who is really interested in art history this movie was just so satisfying to me it was just so 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 intelligent about art both from a historical perspective but also about how you interact with art as an artist and the subject right i mean just to clarify the film is an 18th century french historical drama about uh it's i mean it's a lesbian romance it's pretty much impossible to spoil the movie because it's a very simple concept. Yeah. Um, one of the two lead women is a portrait painter and the other one is a woman who is about to enter into an arranged marriage and basically she needs a portrait to send to her potential future husband and she doesn't want to get married so she is very resistant to the idea of having her portrait painted. So her mother hires this female portrait artist to paint her on the sly because she'll just think that this woman's been hired to like be her walking companion. And it's this very kind of psychologically complex, interesting romance between like these two women who kind of come from different social classes, but like the woman who is technically of a lower class has a lot more freedom and has a career of her own. And as Morgan said, it's very much kind of about art in a really interesting way because it's sort of subverting the idea of the artist's muse. It kind of is this relationship where this very intelligent, independent woman is being forced into a marriage she's not happy with and feels very restricted. And the other woman is basically part of the system which is forcing her into that position. But it's not like, oh, here's we're going to have this like Hollywood sort of like, oh, we're going to flee stuff. It's much more sort of subtle and thoughtful and kind of talking about relationships in an all-female environment as well because it's like it's a very small cast it's basically for most of the film it's just these two women and a maid in this house and it's just it's very charming and gorgeous and like sensual and the color choices are wonderful and like when we first recorded our film festival podcast about this I was just like this movie like invented women <laughs> and it, like it really did because like when I was watching the movie this was a film where I was like in floods of tears and it's just like, I think the part where I was crying the most was like, there's just like a really unexpected artistic choice that happens halfway through, which I won't even explain because I would consider it to be a spoiler, even though it's not a spoiler. <laughs> Watch the film when it comes out in time for Valentine's Day in the US and at the end of February in the yes. UK. Uh, just perfect. But um, just kind of the way it respects 
the female perspective in a historical drama context instead of it being a historical drama about like oh here's this like empowered like woman who behaves like it's the present day or like this heroic unique lady it's like the opposite of that it's very feels very authentic and kind of shows how people's day-to-day lives were and shows kind of people's like intellectual and emotional complexity in a historical environment well there was a great quote from Greta Gerwig about little women about how you have to sort of approach historical fiction with the attitude that like the people you are writing about were the like the most modern people up to that point, while also bearing in mind the reality of the historical moment. And I actually felt about Little Women that some things felt a bit off about that to me historically. I mean, this film was a lot more sophisticated in yes. that regard, but I definitely love that quote from, from Greta Gerwig and yes. I agree with it. I've thought about it a lot and I think it applies better to this film, which felt so fresh and contemporary in a way while also completely fitting into the historical moment it's about and understanding the perspectives of people who were living at that time so far as we can you know understand them now I just thought it was so unbelievably insightful and the combination of all the sort of interesting philosophical stuff it's wrestling with and the unbelievably compelling romance which obviously are totally you know just the two actresses oh my god they're so good <laughs> yeah Noemi Merlon and uh Adele Hanel are just oh so good so 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 good really amazing amazing stuff yeah I watch a lot of historical dramas with the caveat that like usually I'm like this is quite silly for most of them because like most historical dramas are and I obviously watch like a lot of queer cinema as well and like I feel like this and Black Sails are the only two films where I've been like this is been very thoughtful about that sort of overlap between sort of historical authenticity and queerness and sexuality and not imposing contemporary ideas of queerness. And like the reason why I'm not mentioning the favorite on this list is because the favorite is like obviously so kind of exaggerated and like over the top and experimental that it's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't categorize it like that. No, I wouldn't either. It's just doing something different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Your number four. Uh, Yeah. My number four is, as I said, the top four on my list here are pretty much equal. Yeah. <laughs> but my number four is Parasite, which is like the best. It is so fucking good. <laughs> like these four films are all equally brilliant, but the Parasite is at number four because the others, I liked them more, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Just joint four for the top four. Yeah, Parasite by my beloved Bong Joon-ho. An amazing, amazing film that we just recorded a podcast on. So you can probably listen to that one. Um, It is full of spoilers. So only listen to it if you have seen the film. But it's like just a really amazing combination of like biting, like social commentary. And like, it feels like a horror movie, but it's not a horror movie. It is a, not satire, but it's like a combination of sort of comedy and really horrifying real life stuff. And very interestingly filmed in a beautiful, very cleverly designed set which we go into at length in the podcast. That's a really fascinating element of this movie. And um, if you've seen kind of Bong Joon-ho's other movies, you kind of know what you're getting into tonally, but this is like, I would say his best work of the films I've seen by him, all of which I thought were brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I have this on my list as well. A bit a bit higher up, just perfect movie. Good luck at the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, love him. And they're all just so great. <laughs> we'll talk about this a lot next week in sort of yeah. more logistical terms but we literally just recorded the episode so you know yeah you can the other day i watched memories of murder for the first time um which is like one of his earlier films which was his equivalent of like the david fincher movie zodiac um it came before zodiac and it was just it was great i really want morgan to see that i would love to talk about that with you it's fascinating (laughs) i'm I'm really looking forward to it i'm gonna watch it soon 
my number four is a souvenir, which we've already discussed. So back to you for number three. My number three is very on brand. It is the lighthouse. (laughs) Oh, the lighthouse. (laughs) I've actually forgotten. Did we do a whole podcast in the lighthouse or was it folded into our film festival episodes? Oh no, we did a whole podcast about the lighthouse because I didn't see it at the film festival. So, okay. Yeah. Um, for those who aren't aware, this film has definitely sort of vanished because, I mean, it's kind of, it's not quite like The Souvenir, which like didn't star famous people. This does star famous people, but it is a small film directed by Robert Eggers, who directed The Witch slash The Vivitch, the historical <laughs> movie, the historical horror film. And uh, some people are sort of describing this movie as horror, but as we discussed in our episode about it, it's not really horror. It's more sort of a very weird psychological drama it's filmed in black and white in a very specific square shaped aspect ratio which brought me no end of joy um it takes place in a 19th century lighthouse and it stars willem dafoe and robert pattinson as a pair of lighthouse keepers giving very extreme performances (laughs) it is a very stylized film everyone is having a lot of fun artistically i don't think they had a lot of fun filming the movie because they were just having screaming arguments while in cold water for like a few weeks so that wouldn't be much fun as as an actor but um i think they're both very satisfied with the outcome of the movie which is delightful very over the top very like the, the all the language they use like lots of historical dialogue which is like they're yelling i don't know like moby dick fan fiction at each other a lot of kind of erotic stuff happening that was delightful some gore vomiting this this movie really has it all i think we both came out of this movie independently we're like this is the smelliest movie i've ever seen just (laughs) ah love it and um it's nominated for best cinematography at the oscars thrillingly one of the few interesting moves. <laughs> yeah, this movie evaporated from my brain almost immediately, but one of the most beautiful films of the year visually. So I was really, really excited about that. Um, See it in theaters if you can. I don't think that's really an option for people anymore at this point. I hate to well, it's an option for me next week <laughs> in the UK. Yes. <laughs> my number three is the documentary Apollo 11, which I saw quite early in the year it came out in the spring and i was like if i see a movie better than this this year this will be an insane year for movies and it was it was a great year for movies although my top three such a good movie yeah like your top four are basically tied this was directed by todd douglas miller and it is entirely comprised of archival footage from the apollo 11 mission which was the first mission to the moon and it was all of this 70 millimeter film that was like stored in the NASA archives for however many years, 50 years. And they had not been able to digitize it because the technology didn't exist until quite recently. And this guy and his team somehow got their hands on this film and digitized all of it. And so you have all of this unbelievable footage of the command center at Houston. And then also Uh, the people who were watching the rocket take off and then also waiting for them to come back, I think. So it's just like all these normal people just kind of waiting. And then also they have the footage, which people would have been able to see previously from the actual mission itself and the still photographs they took on the moon. But the way it is put together was so unbelievably brilliant. And the footage itself, the 70 millimeter footage from the ground was so beautiful and present. Like you feel like this was made 
I mean, obviously it was made now, but you feel like the whole thing is just like a documentary yeah. from today. And obviously that goes largely to the editing. It's a brilliantly edited movie, but the footage itself is just like, feels incredibly potent. And the music as well is, which is by Matt Morton, is very modern and makes you feel very involved. And I was just profoundly, profoundly moved by this movie. It's stunning. Like, I wasn't disinterested in the moon landing, but it was never something that I had particularly felt. Yeah, I find it really interesting because, like, it doesn't, it, it just shows you what happened. Like, there's, <laughs> that is the simplest way to explain this movie. It just shows you what happened, and I didn't know what happened, and I was fascinated. <laughs> well, you really get the degree to which it was just a fully insane thing to do, which I yeah. had not really grasped before. I mean, obviously, it's like wild that we went to space, but yeah. Watching this, like, I had not realized before the degree to which if they had messed up anything, they all would have died. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of why, like, I, I don't know why I didn't know about the moon landing, really, because, like, I find this topic really interesting in the same way that I'm really morbidly fascinated by polar explorers. I think maybe I was just more interested in Russian cosmonauts. But, like, it's really fucked up, man. It's fucked up that we went to the moon. Yeah. They went there in a tin can. They just flung them up there. <laughs> it's really, really disturbing. I, I was very stressed while watching this film. Whereas I was just like, I love America. <laughs> like, <laughs> I remember watching, I, it like made me choke up. I was really affected by it. And I remember going out and being like, this movie made me feel good about America and white men. Like what is happening? I don't understand. It's 2019. Also, it's, it's really fascinating because like the astronauts, like you're just like, wow, great characters. It's like, they're real. This is just what they were saying on the radio down to the people on Earth. Right. They're unbelievably compelling people all three of them they have amazing amazing faces that all the stuff they're radioing down is great but then you have these little details that make it even more fascinating so like they have the thing that i thought about so much since watching it this is the heartbeat monitor the heartbeat monitors oh my god uh. so they have that data back at houston and when they're going up Buzz Aldrin's heartbeat does not go above like 88 or something the whole time because he's just like, whatever, man, it's great. And Neil Armstrong's is up to like 140 or something because he's just freaking the fuck out as you would. Yeah. And of course they don't say anything because you just gotta, you know, but just having that piece of information in your mind for the rest of the movie is so crucial because you know that he's just... Like, yeah. whereas Buzz Aldrin's totally, totally chill. And uh, <laughs> it was just, I was completely, completely riveted by it. This is streaming on Hulu, I believe. It was a CNN film, so it may be available through some other service as well. But uh, watch it on the biggest screen that you can, because it is immersive. Um, I just loved it so, so, so much. Great, great movie. Your number two. My number two is High Life, which really uh, illustrates my fascination with horrifying, morbid space stuff. Yes. Yep. Uh, my number two is Parasite. So we're just repeating ourselves yep. now. And I think I know what your number one is. So uh, Yeah, it's Portrait of a Lady <laughs> on Fire. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, my number one we have not talked about yet. So we'll, we'll close off with a, a, an original. This is A Hidden Life by Terrence Malick. Oh, which, okay. Yeah, not seen that one. Yeah. I don't. I think it's out in the UK yet. This did come out last month in the United States, but its release was severely botched by the Disney Corporation because they don't care about movies. Uh, this is a Fox Searchlight movie, which is now just Searchlight, I guess. And 
uh, as Matt Solar Sites was reporting on Twitter, they were requiring theaters to make like the same level of commitment they make like per screens that they were showing that they make for Star Wars for a three hour Terrence Malick movie. So nowhere showed this. Nobody saw it. It was all, it's also like a three hour Terrence Malick movie. So it was yeah, never like, going to make much Malick money. Terrence Malick is obviously a very acclaimed and beloved director, but he's not like putting bums on seats like Star Wars, you know? No. You have to finesse the promotion for this movie, which is a three hour movie about Nazis. Right. So the setup for this film, it's about this real person, Franz Jagerstatter, who was a conscientious objector in the Second World War. He refused to like swear an oath of fealty to Hitler. And this was this sort of saga over a series of years, and he was ultimately executed as a result, obviously, and was imprisoned for a period of time before that. And the film covers the sort of lead up to him being drafted and then he gets to come back home for a while and then the imprisonment and it's very long I did not find it overly long I was really gripped the whole time and I think the length is important because you have to really understand his life at home he's and his wife are like profoundly in love with each other they have these beautiful children and the build-up in the town of this sort of authoritarian sentiment which he's very resistant to he's very profoundly catholic that's what's driving his resistance to the regime and then once you ultimately get to the prison it is really really punishing to watch him being tormented and tortured really by the guards but he has this unbelievable conviction of just like i'm not going to do this and then the movie really questions whether or not he's doing the right thing because it's not going to have any effect on anything like him saying i'm not yeah i I actually wasn't aware that he was catholic but like as you were speaking i was thinking this really reminds me of the scorsese movie silence yes which is also very long but it requires that length and it's also a very punishing movie about like martyrdom i was thinking about that the entire time i love that film also i think this is better but it was this very very similar type of thing the difference there being that silence is about portuguese missionaries to japan and they are i mean to call them aggressors would be incorrect but like they're imposing themselves right yeah it's a very different scenario but the setup is very similar but the context in which you're watching silence and the Andrew Garfield character is refusing to renounce Christ basically but I was watching that being like dude like just do it this is really ridiculous at this point like come on because he again is the interloper and in this obviously you're sort of with him the whole time but at the same time like he's clearly going to die and then leave his family without you know a father and a source of income and what is the end result like he's just going to be killed and the Nazis are going to keep going. And again, you definitely feel watching it like this is the correct thing to do. But what does that mean exactly? And the movie is really, really smart about sort of it doesn't provide an answer because there is no answer to that. But it just makes you think about that question in a really interesting way. There is a really small cameo from Franz Rogowski, who was the lead in uh, the film Transit that came out last year who is this like other guy who also winds up in prison with him. He's literally in the movie for maybe five minutes, but he's has this sort of joyous attitude that 
I have thought about that performance more than almost anything in a movie this year. And he's literally on screen for like, maybe not even five minutes. Just the number of these sort of small, beautiful moments in this movie, which is what Malik is so good at. I was like profoundly, profoundly, profoundly affected by it. I was like weeping at the end again, which I really do. It really, really messed me up. And obviously there's so much, like there's so much importance to what he's, talking about now it's not in an overbearing way like it's not like he's trying to draw like a direct you know allegory to our current political situation but you can't not think about that and it felt to me like a movie like everybody should be watching so the fact that it was just not seen by anyone was really painful to me but um I think it's one of Malick's best movies he's one of my probably two favorite directors and he's made some bad stuff recently so this was really exciting as a just masterpiece, I felt be like, Oh my God, you're back. Like, Thank you. And, uh, his next film is literally going to be about, uh, Jesus as opposed to this film, which is metaphorically about Jesus. So, uh, I'm looking forward to that. Mark Rylance plays Satan. I'm in. Can't oh wait. Oh my God. Oh my, oh my God. Oh my God. Y- yes. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Well, there was actually like five people playing Satan or something, but I'd, oh my God. Yes. Listeners, you have no idea how much I love Mark Rylance. My love for Mark Rylance is only equaled by the lack of good film roles he takes. Fantastic stage actor, most of his film roles, absolute nonsense. Yeah, I think he just... Dunkirk? That's basically it. I mean, he won an Oscar for Bridge of Spies, right? But like, I'm not fucking watching that. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Mark Rylance is in fact playing four versions of Satan in this movie. It's not multiple actors playing Satan. He's playing all oh. of the versions of Satan. Oh, he's, so, oh my god, this is like four times better than I was expecting. <laughs> get ready. Matthias Schoenertz is St. Peter and Geza Rorig, who played uh, the lead in Son of Saul as Christ, who is literally the best person for that role alive. Is he the rabbi? Is he in real life a rabbi? Uh, yeah, no, but uh-huh. he studied at oh, like, okay. the Jewish Theological Seminary, I think. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this. there's literally a conversation in this movie that I've also thought about a lot that was really one of the best scenes he's in a church and there's a like an artist painting on the walls or like restoring a fresco or something talking about how he's all the work he does is sort of superficial and it's people in the church don't really aren't really seeing anything and it's it doesn't it's sort of meaningless and he goes on this long monologue about how one day he's going to paint a picture of the true christ and it feels like that's a commentary on the film like the the main character has this incredible like Christ-like attitude in a way that, and it was clearly like Malik talking about himself and he's so private that it was really interesting to have this like surrogate figure in the movie talking clearly with his voice. And so I was like, wow, an interesting commentary on this movie. Like it, the end of the movie is explicitly like just take it out of the Bible. Right. And then I looked at Wikipedia and I was like, oh no, his next movie literally is about Jesus. So like, that's <laughs> like, okay. I will definitely be watching the Jesus movie and not just, because of Mark Rylance. I mean, I'm sure there's like a million movies by Jesus that I've not heard of, but like the idea of like a very kind of directly Jewish film about Jesus is something that appeals to me a lot. I mean, I've been thinking about this a lot recently because I was rewatching The Young Pope and then the new series, which we will be talking about in a future episode. I mean, I'm an atheist. I was never religiously inclined at all, but I did grow up growing to a Protestant church. And I think that just being around the, the like the stories and the imagery as a child the ambience right made me very receptive to art that engages with those like ideas and images and sometimes Malik can be a little bit like the tree of life 
I didn't like at the time and I watched it again recently and I was like, oh no, this is one of the best movies ever made. But there are elements of that movie that are like too proselytizing maybe isn't the right word, but like it's too much. Too Christian. Right, like I can't access it. And most of the movie's great and like it's fine. It's just that there's some parts of it where I'm like, I just like this just isn't doing anything for me. But something like this where it's coming from that part of him and he's using these stories and it's clearly devout, but it's not like about that exactly. It's just that that's the vehicle for what he's talking about. I found really, really affecting. I cannot recommend this movie highly enough. If it's playing anywhere near you, like I urge you to go see it in a cinema because that really, it's, it's beautiful. Obviously it's a Terrence Malick movie, but um, if it's not, which is probably the case, cause it's not playing anywhere. Uh, check it out once it gets to streaming because it's just, it's so good. It's so, so, so good. And urgent in our current time so that is our our lists great great film year like truly so many good movies and a resultingly long episode right (laughs) hopefully that will have given you guys some recommendations for stuff to check out if you haven't seen our our faves from the year Next week, we will be really uh, lowering the tone by talking about the Oscars this year, which nominated uh, Garbage. So, you know. Bunch of nonsense. Yep. Bunch of nonsense on there. Yeah, really not not a good slate. So we'll be offering predictions for uh, many of the major categories and a general overview of the, the scene. And uh, speaking of awards... We are actually eligible for a Hugo Award, so if you are someone who can nominate for the Hugos, please consider us in the fan cast category, um, which would be specifically our kind of commentary on sci-fi fantasy movies, of which we have done a great deal this year and always. So um, Hugos, think of us. Yes. Thank you, everybody. And thank you for listening, of course, to this quite long episode you can find more of our content, including an extra bonus episode recently on whether the top grossing films of 2019, none of which appeared on either of these lists, needless to say, uh, exist or not. Our general consensus was that most of them did not exist. Yeah. Did Captain Marvel exist? <laughs> what film was that? <laughs> uh, and I will also be running a book club similar to the book club I did for Little Women about Emma which uh, has an adaptation coming up at the end of February that we will be discussing on the podcast. So if you like Jane Austen, come over to Patreon and we will be discussing Emma, my personal favorite Jane Austen novel. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Yeah, you can find my work on The Daily Dot where I'm currently recapping Star Trek Picard, brilliant show. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.